<laughs> okay, just before we get started, I'm not going to do a full intro to to my sermon, but some of you weren't with us last week uh, online for the service. Basically, we'll, we looked at Dirtbag David because we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and chapter 11 is the turning point for David's life and the narrative of of um, First and Second Samuel, and we looked at that chapter. The king is securely in power, and he uses his power in the same way that Samuel had warned all Israel that all powerful people use power. They use power to take and take and take. Um, in that way, David's taking of Bathsheba as his own and taking of Uriah's life aren't shocking. They're tragic. But they're not necessarily surprising. Power makes us feel like we can do whatever we want with no consequences. And that power has corrupted the king's faithful heart of God. Even David, who is such a man of God, even his heart gets twisted and corrupted by power. So David's destructive greed and selfishness and lust, they're not necessarily shocking. In fact, it's today where we'll we'll read the most shocking part of the story of David and Bathsheba. But we ended the sermon last week with an important question. David has drifted further from the heart of God than even King Saul ever did. Chapter 11 sees David breaking at least five of the commandments. No other God, no idols, murder, adultery, coveting. You could probably throw in lying there, so maybe six. All in one chapter. And over the course of this chapter, David will engage in the same kind of acts of disobedience that got Saul's kingship ripped from him after Saul had stoked the fiery anger of God. So the question is, will this new, arrogant, self-serving, murderous, sexually manipulative, deceptive, disobedient, taking nature of David result in his kingship being ripped from him as well? If God would take away from Saul, will he take away from David? How will God respond to the disgusting downfall of David? And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, how God responds, and how David responds to God's response. And the most shocking part of the entire saga of David and Bathsheba is coming up in this chapter. Here's 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, And we're just going to read the first 12 verses at first. The Lord sent Nathan to David. We've met Nathan once before. Nathan was the one who gave David the covenant blessing. Um, He just kind of wanders in unannounced and says enormous things. And that's what he does here. When Nathan came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to David, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. How would you approach a power-hungry king who has no problem disposing of the people who inconvenience him in his desire to feed every possible appetite? Especially if you come to the king with a message of divine condemnation. How would you break that news to King David if you were Nathan? Well, as is so often the case in scripture, Nathan uses a prophetic parable and lets the king condemn himself. It's the same tactic that Jesus uses to excellent effect. In fact, for us, the entire Old Testament serves as a parable, one that's rooted in history. It's a non-fiction parable, but it's a parable to us. The historical David is even further away and more foreign to us than the rich and poor farmer are in the story that David gets told. But still, we read Nathan's parable, and we read the story of David and Bathsheba, and we read the entire Old Testament, and we too stand as deeply convicted as the king himself. God uses stories that we can see ourselves in. That's what Nathan does for David, and that's what the Old Testament does for us. They're not just dead people from a long time ago. We're supposed to read ourselves into these stories, to bake truth into our hearts and minds. And so when David stands condemned and convicted by Nathan the prophet, we too should stand condemned and convicted by Nathan the prophet. But we'll come to that idea. We'll come back to that idea later. The power of the parable for David and for us is its simplicity. It cuts through the royalty, the history, the arrogance, and the ignorance, and gets to the devastating heart of the matter, which is this. Uriah and Bathsheba belong to each other, and David greedily took Bathsheba and greedily slaughtered Uriah. Nathan clearly interprets Bathsheba as the innocent you. In verse 10, God tells David, You despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You took her in the same way the rich man took the, the one you lamb. Now, remember that at this point, Bathsheba is David's legal wife. Legally, they're married. But even though they're married, Nathan doesn't say your wife, Bathsheba. Nathan consistently calls her the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's because that's where she belongs. She belongs with Uriah because that's where she was loved and cherished and respected as a partner rather than a plaything. And David, the taken king, with all his hundreds of wives and concubines, took Bathsheba from him, in the same way the rich man took the poor man's one beloved ewe lamb, when he had his own entire flock and herds to choose from. But in a, in a painful twist, Bathsheba's not the only one who could be interpreted as the little lamb. Uriah, too, can be seen as the little helpless lamb who is slaughtered by the rich man, to satisfy his greedy appetites. Bathsheba is then the poor farmer, who is forced to live right next to the one who, who takes so selfishly from her. 
with no regard for the victims in his path. So as much as Bathsheba is the lamb, Uriah is also the lamb, slaughtered greedily and forcing the farmer to live next to the one who who harms her. And here's where I want to pause for a sec and give another word about Bathsheba. She is absolutely a victim. I have seen way too many bad takes on the story of David and Bathsheba where it's like she's complicit, like she wanted it to happen. She's in no way to be under, even in the words of scripture, scripture is going out of its way to show that David is at fault, not Bathsheba. But she's not to be understood as complicit with David's sin. She was simply washing up from her postmenstrual impurity in the privacy of her own home. She was peeping tommed against her will. She was taken against her will. And she was forced against her will to have sex with a man who had far more power than herself. So in other words, she was raped and then conceived a child in that rape. She was then dismissed and was only welcomed into the palace, into the royal harem, not for love, not because David loved her, but so that David could save face. And the heartache for Bathsheba is not over, as we'll see in the portion of 2 Samuel that we'll read next. So don't mistake, don't... Don't make the same mistake that far too many people have made when they interpret this story, especially men, powerful men, who tend to blame women for their own sexual abuse because they're asking for it, which is not a thing that's real at all. Nobody asks for that. Rather than confront the actual sin, which is coveting, lusting, and assaulting someone for their own gratification, far too many men just dismiss it as saying, well, they were asking for it because look what they're wearing. She's bathing. She must be wanting it. Well, she's bathing in the privacy of her own home to follow ritual. She did not ask for this. Bathsheba is a victim. She suffers in the wake of David's endless appetite for power and sex and control. This will remain true for Bathsheba right until David's final moments. Right, I think it's 1 Kings 2 when David dies. And he mistreats Bathsheba right to the very end, right till his last moments. Making it worse, Bathsheba's pain is never mentioned in chapter 12. We hear of injustices against Uriah, and we hear of David's pain, but Bathsheba is an afterthought who's spoken of as property to be transferred from man to man, which was typical in that culture. She goes from wife of Uriah to finally, in verse 24, wife of David. She is never... Bathsheba, rape survivor who is forced to marry her attacker, or Bathsheba, widow who is forced to marry her husband's murderer, or Bathsheba, grieving mother whose baby lost his life because of the sins of the man that she conceived the baby with. What happened to her was an absolute tragedy and travesty, but her suffering is glossed over so that we can focus on the man in the center of it all, King David. So I will move on to David, but I just want to say that Bathsheba deserves far more sympathy than David. What's going to happen to David is deserved. What happened to Bathsheba was absolute injustice by somebody with power who used that and abused that power to take and take and take. I know that I really drilled that in when I did the Bathsheba story retelling. But it can't be said enough. It shows just how gross David is when we really look at Bathsheba. But let's get back to David. Whether Bathsheba is the lamb greedily taken for his own consumption, or whether Uriah is the lamb whose blood was shed for the appetites of the king, or whether it's both, 
Nathan's story has its desired effect. David is outraged at the injustice of the rich man, who has it all and cares about none of it. The rich man has everything he could ever need and, and doesn't care about any of it. All he wants is more. And he takes everything from the poor man, who has nothing except one thing that he loves in the world more than anything. One person that he loves more than anything. And again, the poor man is Bathsheba and Uriah. Both had their lamb ripped from them because of David's selfish abuse of power. But David can't see that twist yet. He can't see how this parable runs parallel to his own story. David, as king, was the chief justice for the nation of Israel. That was part of his role. He would sit as judge over the toughest courts in the land. And his heart still beats with a remnant of God's justice. Somewhere under all those calluses on his heart, calluses of power and greed and lust, somewhere under there, there's still a heart for God. He can see the evil of the rich man, and he's quick to render judgment, which is death, or at least restitution four times over for the man's lack of pity. Any man who takes so recklessly must be dealt with severely before the damage overtakes the entire community. Right, David? David can't see that he's actually condemning himself. And that's when Nathan seizes the moment and drops the bombshell on the head of the king. You are that man, King David. You are him. In the Hebrew, it's only two words. You're him. It's you. David, you are the rich man. You consumed with no regard for anyone else. You took what was beloved from someone else and you slaughtered innocence to feed your urges. David, you are that man. Nathan then twists the knife in deeper with words directly from Yahweh. He says, I made you king, David. I saved you from Saul. I gave you all this wealth, all this glory, and with it, all the pleasure and prestige that comes with having dozens of wives at your disposal. I gave you an empire, David, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. You had my heart, David, and I had yours, God says, but it wasn't enough. You had to despise me, David, by taking a wife that you had no right to take and taking a life that you had no right to take. All of this sin, all of this blood is on your hands, David. You are that man. You stand condemned. And then the punishment is given in verse 10, and it's a real doozy. The sword will never depart from your household, David. The lineage that God had promised in a covenant with David in chapter 7 will become rife with tension, infighting, betrayal, and bloodshed. David's sons would never know rest or peace as God had given to David. But that's a punishment that David will be long dead before he ever sees. We're talking generation after generation. It's a harsh consequence, but not necessarily a consequence on David himself. However, there is personal punishment to come for David, and it too is devastating. There will be turmoil and calamity in David's own family, culminating in a member of David's own family sleeping with ten of David's wives in public. What David did in secret, committing rape against Bathsheba, someone else will do to David in public bringing tremendous shame and insult on the king. What was done in private could not escape the eyes of God, and David will learn very publicly what the repercussions will feel like. This will happen several chapters later. In 2 Samuel 16, Absalom, who is David's son, will claim the throne of, of Israel, will usurp it from his father, 
and to emasculate his own father, he'll set up a tent on the roof of the palace and sleep with a number of David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Not that God necessarily wants this to happen or approves of this happening. Those, those women are victims, and God would never sign off on sin, even as an act of judgment. But instead, it's the natural consequences, David reaping what he sows. David is learning that private sin has public consequences. A king is not above the law. He is not filled with absolute autonomy, meaning he can act however he wants, doing whatever he pleases with no consequence and no restraint. A king is not free to use his power to take what he is not permitted to take. A king is to use his power to serve, to provide, to love, as Jesus the king eventually would show so perfectly. A king that gifts rather than than grabs. A king who lays down power sacrificially for the benefit of others, rather than exert power selfishly for the benefit of himself. And David is going to have to learn that. And so the sword will hang over David's household. There will be all this infighting with his own family, and there will be an act of sexual degradation that will shame David publicly. But there's another punishment to come. And with it, the two most shocking elements of the entire story, the elements that I've kind of been teasing this whole last two weeks, So we're going to read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter and see one more punishment and see what the most shocking detail is. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him and got to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, so exactly a week after Nathan visited David, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, While the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes... He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, and now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. And I had a professor explain to me that that word comforted is kind of a miss. We're not supposed to see it as David going to make Bathsheba feel better. We're supposed to see it as David going to make himself feel better. It's more about relief from his own guilt, um, which is sad. But he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means, I think, beloved of the Lord. Yeah, loved by the Lord. 
Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. This is like a, oh yeah, by the way, there's a war going on. Remember, David didn't go out to war. Um, and so we'll wrap that up real quick. Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken his water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm not going to spend much time on most of it. We're not going to deal with that whole thing about David grieving and then not grieving. We're just going to skip that. But the son, the seven, or a week after meeting with Nathan, the son dies for the sins of the father, which seems unfair both to the baby and to the baby's mother, Bathsheba. But a second baby is born, and in an act of redemption, God loves this child, fulfilling the covenant promise God had made to David in chapter 7. God had told David, back in chapter 7, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul. And that promise is fulfilled through Bathsheba's son, Solomon, who, like David, will have an effective kingship in the first half of his rule, and then power will get to his head, and he'll have an even more disastrous downfall than David himself. Solomon, in the end, turns out to be a totally useless king, uh, despite his shining reputation for wisdom. Solomon is a very overrated hero. But God loves him and favors him, especially early on. Now, you, you can't replace a baby. Any of you who've suffered a miscarriage, you know that having another baby afterwards doesn't necessarily eliminate the pain of the baby that you lost. I'm sure David's and especially Bathsheba's griefs were long and deep and painful for the baby that they lost. But the baby that followed, even though it's not a replacement, you can't do that, but the baby that followed would eventually rise to the throne of Israel amidst all the chaos of David's later years and would bring peace to Israel, which is what the name Solomon means. It's connected to the word shalom. And Solomon will bring some peace for a while, and then it'll all fall apart. I'm going to skip most of the middle section in the interest of saving time and jump right down to the end in verses 26 to 31. The whole downfall of David's story began back in chapter 10, which was like four weeks ago, I think, with David fighting against the Ammonites. And the story concludes here in chapter 12 with David finally finishing off the Ammonites. It's like a bracket. This battle against the Ammonites brackets the entire David and Bathsheba downfall. And it confirms that David still exists within the covenant that God has made with him. David is still receiving rest from his enemies. As God promised, he's defeating the Ammonites. God's not taking the covenant away from David. If God did take the covenant away, then David would have fallen to the Ammonites, but he doesn't. But there's also really subtle commentary in here as well. Remember, Joab invites David to complete the victory and claim the city. He says, hey, David, you better come finish the job, because if you don't, my men will take it and I'll get credit for it. We'll name the city after me. But unlike David, Joab is not 
one to take what isn't his. That's what David did. David took and took and took what didn't belong to him. Joab won't do that. Joab respects the king enough that he gives the victory to the king. And Joab gives that victory willingly, unlike the king himself who takes and takes and takes for himself. But more interestingly, David then collects war plunder, including the crown of the Ammonite king, as well as some Ammonite war slaves, conscripts them into hard labor. Why is this significant? Well, because the taking of plunder and allowing conquered people to survive are exactly the acts of disobedience that got the kingship ripped away from Saul way back in 1 Samuel 15. God says, go, destroy the Amalekites. I don't want any of them left alive. Leave no plunder. Just destroy it all. Get rid of them. And Saul does defeat the Amalekites, but he leaves the king alive and he takes a bunch of plunder. And for that, God says, why didn't you obey me? Now you'll never be, you won't be king. Your descendants won't be king. The kingship will be taken from you. So David does the exact same thing as Saul, but he gets away with it. After committing a far more disgusting sin than Saul ever performed as king. It shows that the standard between Saul and David is very different. But why? That's the interesting question. Why? Why is David allowed to live and even thrive as king despite these despicable sins? Why is David allowed to perform the same acts as Saul without any punishment whatsoever? It's a complicated question, but it comes down to what I consider the most shocking aspect of the entire story. Yes, David committing sexual assault against Bathsheba is shocking. So is his attempted cover-up. So is the eventual murder that he commits. Everything about chapter 11 is shocking in its own way. It's shocking how far the king has wandered from the justice and righteousness of God's own heart. But as I mentioned earlier... Such behavior isn't exactly unusual for the powerful men of the world. In fact, the entire story of the books of Samuel and the books of the kings is about how corruptive power tends to be for, for kings as individuals and for Israel as a nation as a whole. When Israel gets powerful, they turn from God every time. Power corrupts. It's Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 coming to life before our eyes with, with tragic consequences. So ultimately, it's not shocking that David is corrupted by power. It's actually surprising that it took so long, even for a man of faith like David. It's also a major part of what makes me fall on my knees before Jesus, who has absolute power and only ever uses it to seek and to save and to bring love and life to others. So no, the downfall of David isn't what's shocking to me. Rather, the most shocking part of the entire story is found in verse 13. After being confronted by the prophet Nathan as the greedy rich taker from the parable, David offers a brief response of repentance and regret, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. That response is what's shocking to me. The three major twists in this story are each delivered via short little bombshell statements made by three different people, and each one is only two words long in Hebrew. The first comes from Bathsheba. Her two words are, I'm pregnant. This is the moment where David's iron grip on the situation gets loosened for the first time. David is not as in control as he thinks he is, and other people are deeply affected by his sinful actions. That's the first two-word statement given by Bathsheba that changes the narrative of this whole story. The second two-word bombshell comes from the mouth of Nathan, after David condemns himself in the response to the rich man taking the poor man's sheep. 
Nathan makes David see the brutality of his own actions for the first time by saying, You're him! In Hebrew, it's just two words. You are that man. David, it's you. And now the third bomb gets dropped. And it's perhaps the most shocking two words of them all, given the mouth that they come from. And those two words are, I've sinned. So, I'm pregnant. You're him. And I've sinned. The entire story is summarized in those three statements. The first shows the real-life consequences of David's sin. The second is God confronting David about those sins. And the third, shockingly, is David's response to that confrontation. By this point, David had grown calloused and cynical and utterly self-absorbed. All the power and privilege of the throne has deformed his faith and warped his desires and hardened his heart. And I see a lot of myself in those harsh statements. But there is redemption. David is not so far gone that he can't humbly accept the word of the Lord and repent. That's the thing that sets David apart from Saul. That's why Saul gets his kingship ripped from him and there's no redemption from Saul, but there is redemption for David, even if it is only temporary. David did the same things that got the kingship ripped away from Saul, and on top of that, he committed far greater sins than Saul ever did, going so far as to demolish the 1st, 2nd, 6th, 7th, and 10th commandments all in one short chapter. But here's the difference. When Saul was confronted about his disobedience in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, he got defensive. He went, but, but, but I, I did listen to you, God, or at least I tried to. And hey, God, would you like some plunder that I plundered for you? And besides, I only did it because I was afraid of the man. Yeah, that's it. I was afraid of the man, so I took the plunder. Please don't blame me. I'm not at fault. That was Saul's response. Saul begs for forgiveness, but he makes excuses the whole time. You aren't genuinely repentant if you try to excuse your behavior. There is no excuse. It's You can't say, I'm sorry, honey, that I said your butt looks big. It's only because your butt looks big. That's You're not going to get anywhere. Try a new tactic. It's not a good apology. You're just excusing yourself. No, it's, honey, I have sinned. Please forgive me for my foolish statement. You have to go a little further. You can't make excuses. That was a terrible example. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that, nor have I ever wanted or needed to say that. It's just a... Uh, shoot, I wish I said something different. Anyway, don't make excuses. Um, I'm sorry, honey. I have sinned. <laughs> anyway. David demonstrates this in, in verse 12. Just, I have sinned. When confronted by his sins, as well as the consequences of those sins, he accepts them. He states plainly, I have sinned. No excuses, no equivocation. He prays for God to turn from his judgment on the baby, but when God refuses to do so, David goes on with life and he puts his trust once again in Yahweh. David will continue to make major mistakes, as we'll see, but here in chapter 12, David is shockingly willing to accept God's word to him. Any other king would take the head of Nathan, would fly into a rage of entitlement and selfish anger, but not David. David's willingness to seek God's forgiveness for his actions is what's truly shocking in this story, and it's what's truly instructive to us. I don't know what the worst thing you've ever done is, 
although I'm sure it's not as destructive as David's actions in these stories. Like David in chapter 11, your sins were likely done in secret. God, of course, saw it, but but I didn't. Maybe nobody knows anything about them. But never mind your worst sins. All of us make a regular habit of sinful behavior. We can't help it, although that's not an excuse that's going to fly with our holy God. All of us are the rich farmers in Nathan's parable. All of us consume recklessly, especially in North America. All of us take from those who are less privileged than us, whether we recognize it or not. All of us are slaves to our selfish, sinful appetites, whether for pleasure or comfort or money or power. All of us devour people around us for our own purposes, which is what anger does, which is what judgment does, gossip and bigotry. All of those are ways that we consume and devour the people around us for our own purposes. We may not be sexually assaulting bathing women who we see from our palace rooftops. We may not be ordering our nemesis to be killed by the arrows of the Ammonites, but don't be fooled. We are all David. We all need to stand in the dark shadow of our sin and choose to turn to God's light. What's shocking isn't David's sin. We know what sin does to us. We see it in ourselves. Hopefully we do. What's truly shocking is David's repentance his selfless acknowledgement of his many mistakes, and the destructive consequences of those mistakes. We are called to have the same shocking response as David. And there's a follow-up shock to the shock of David's repentance, and that's the shock of God's forgiveness. As, As Lisa said in communion, don't let that shock wear off. We shouldn't become too comfortable with it, with God's forgiveness, that we take it for granted. And I, I love how you said that, Lisa. And it's true. God's forgiveness should shock us. Nathan says to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God turns to us and shockingly declares the exact same thing of you and me, despite the many disgusting downfalls that you and I are guilty of. Because of his death, Jesus has taken away your sin, as Nathan says to David. And because of his rise to life, Jesus has made it so you will not die as Nathan says to David. Of course, knowing the nature of God as we do, it's not shocking that Yahweh forgives so freely and loves us so graciously. That's who he is. That's who our God is. But when we are the ones caught in our downfalls, when we are the ones confronted by the consequences of our many mistakes, when we recognize how similar we are to the rich farmer or the taking king David, when it is us experiencing that forgiveness, it is shocking enough to utterly transform our entire lives. And David models for us the proper response to that transformative forgiveness, which is genuine repentance. There's not a very deep glimpse of what repentance looks like here, but there is in Psalm 51, which I mentioned earlier, Dave had mentioned earlier. David David 51. Psalm 51 is written either by David himself in response to his sins against Bathsheba, or else is written by someone else reflecting on David's downfall. Either way, it's very instructive to us about what repentance, true repentance, looks like. So let's read Psalm 51, and then I just have one more paragraph and we're done. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. 
see all the many different words there are here for, for their sin, transgress, transgressions, iniquity. They're all words for the mistakes we make that show we don't love God with our whole heart, that replace ourselves as king on the throne. That's what all those words mean. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that verse always bothered me because, I mean, it says against you and you alone. Well, no, you also sinned against Bathsheba. You also sinned against Uriah. You also sinned against this baby who dies as a result of your sin. But ultimately, ultimately, all sin is an affront to God, is a challenge to the authority of God. And in the end, all sin is is evil in his sight and, and is done as an affront to God. So I guess what he says makes sense. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Here's the part that you could probably sing along to. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, and God will, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. That is a powerful theological statement for somebody who's under the Sinai covenant. You don't need bulls. You don't need sheep. You don't need sacrifices at all. What do you need, God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you want to know what repentance looks like, study chapter, study Psalm 51 again and again. There is so much richness to my... I could do a whole sermon just on Psalm 51. Instead, I'm going to give it a paragraph. Here's what repentance looks like in Psalm 51. Repentance is humility. Repentance is a cleansing as it says, cleanse me with hyssop, which is very uh, ceremonial. Repentance is loving relationship with God rather than obligatory religion. It's showing God love with your words and actions and heart rather than showing him love just by going through the motions, which is also what Lisa mentioned about communion. Repentance is having a new, or probably better said, a renewed heart and mind. It's proclaiming this forgiveness and mercy to others. David says, I will teach your, your ways to transgressors. Part of repentance means I will be an agent of bringing your forgiveness to others. Repentance is praise to the God who delivers us from guilt and death. To me, it's shocking that the same David who takes so much from so many people in chapter 11 is the one who gives this lesson in chapter 12. Sin destroys. It makes us take and take and take only for ourselves. You, yes you, I'm pointing to you on Zoom, pointing also to myself, 
You are that man or that woman. The story, the downfall of David is the story of the downfall of each one of us. You are that man. You are that woman. But God is a God of forgiveness. Jesus has taken away our sin, in the words of Nathan the prophet, and in him we will not die, also in the words of Nathan the prophet. He has taken away our sin, and we will not die. And our response to that must be, I have sinned, and then turn back to God. That's how we, like David, are redeemed from our own disgusting downfalls. Shockingly. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of David uh, and Bathsheba and Uriah and baby Solomon. Thank you for the story of chapter 12. It's a tough story. It's it's tough to see David fail so spectacularly, but in his failure, we see ourselves, God. God, I, I ask that you would forgive me for all the mistakes that I make daily, hourly. I ask that you'd forgive each of my brothers and sisters here this morning for all the mistakes that we make together as a community and the mistakes that we make individually as your children. We know that in you, Jesus, uh, we will not die, that you take our sin from us, and we praise you, Jesus, for saving us in that way. We're not worthy of it. We see how many disgusting things we've done in our own lives. But thank you, just as David was redeemed, that you redeem each of us. Father, help us to not sin. Help us to not make mistakes based on selfishly taking and taking for ourselves. There are always consequences for our sins, whether they're practical or interpersonal or theological. There's always consequences. So help us to not sin and instead to live a life that shows who you are. Help us to live a life not of sin, but of glorifying you. And when we do sin, when we do make mistakes, help us to turn to you in the way that David does in Psalm 51. Thank you for forgiving us and for giving us life. Um, We praise you, Jesus, as the good king, not a taking king, but a giving king. And so we praise you in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. David's willingness to seek God's forgiveness for his actions is what's truly shocking in this story, and it's what's truly instructive to us. We are all David, but God is a God of forgiveness. He has taken away our sin, and we will not die. And our response to that must be, I have sinned, and then turn back to God. Aren't we going to talk about David here? Yeah. David's a cool person. I thought he was nice. Lorraine, I like your like your view. Yeah, yeah, we're up in our on the deck today. What a great idea. Oh. Nice. Yeah, we should do that sometime around the fire pit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the trampoline. That was today when I said, the trampoline will call Blair's name way too loud. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> The same would happen at our place, to be honest. Angie will be doing backflips during church. Yeah, probably. <laughs>